The only purpose of the Talking Space podcast is to educate and to inform. The views expressed in this program are the opinions, experiences, and conclusions of the guests. They do not represent the official policy or position of the Space Troop Society as a whole, NASA, any other space agency, company, contractor, or affiliate. And welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space Podcast, episode 242, for the week of December 19th, 2010. Boy, we're getting close to the end of the year. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight, as always, is our great crew. Welcome, Gene McCulka. Good evening, Sawyer. Glad to be here. And welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. Hi, everybody. Good to be here. Alrighty then, let's get started. And our first story involves STS-133 once again. This time, as there have been problems before with the GUP, the ground umbilical carrier plate, which had leaked once before, the STS-133 team completed an entire tanking test on Friday, December 17th. In doing so, they completed the entire tanking and fueling process up until the T-minus 31 second mark. At that point, they then proceeded to drain the fuel, and now the shuttle is scheduled to roll back to the Vehicle Assembly Building Tuesday at about 12.30 a.m. Eastern Standard Time to be back in the Vehicle Assembly Building by 7.30 a.m. so that they may perform more testing and x-ray examination on the fuel tank. Discovery is set to launch on February 3rd. Now, what do you think they're going to find? Anything big? That test comprised of uh, attaching several sensors on the skin of uh, the external tank to uh, match some predictions that the folks had for some computer models. Um, There's an interesting article that I'm looking at from Spaceflight Now that it's dated December 17th uh, by Bill Harwood, which uh, he wrote initially for CBS News. Um, The uh, tanking test began at, uh, I believe it was 7 o'clock in the morning on Friday, and it ended about 2.30 after... uh, uh, engineers went ahead and, and drained all the uh, all, all the fuel from the external tank. Um, the plan is to uh, go ahead and, and roll Discovery back to the uh, vehicle assembly building, I believe, Tuesday, at least according to the report. That's this coming Tuesday. And uh, to go ahead and inspect uh, parts of the tank that they can't get to out at the pad. Uh, which leads me to believe they may actually demate the orbiter. I, I could be I could be wrong on that one. But uh, uh, the preliminaries indicate that no uh, real anomalies were, were found. Um, uh, they're gonna, mission managers are going to meet Tuesday to, to sort through all the data, and uh, we'll probably have some more information as, uh, as, uh, as it becomes available on this. But uh, it looks like Discovery's going back to the VAB for a little while, huh, Mark? Yeah, it kind of kind of get the feeling that this is going to be one of the tougher problems that uh, that they've faced certainly not the toughest but 
you got to wonder if they reach a point where they really can't say anything other than we found a problem, we fixed a problem, we can't tell you why, and uh, does anybody want to get the extra seat on the shuttle to uh, go for a joyride? Any volunteers? <laughs> you know, uh, there's risk involved with this, and and there still are risks involved with shuttle flight. But uh, hopefully uh, they'll come up with some good answers. And, of course, I think I've said that a time or two or three, but... Um, you know, it's what NASA has to do. They've got to look for crew safety and getting the mission done. And uh, this is part of their process to to get to that end point where they announce we'll stop. And uh, it's a shame that it takes so long, that it costs so much money, and it's so involved in, uh, in engineering and resources that it takes to, to do all this. But uh, you, you got to do it. Indeed. Um, it uh, looks like I'm, I'm just looking at the article here a little bit more. Um, again, mission managers are going to go ahead and meet Tuesday to uh, discuss whether, whether or not they're going to install any structural stiffeners on these 36 stringers, um, nine to either side of the two uh, booster attachment thrust panels that um, apparently these, these panels go ahead and experience the most load on launch, and um, if everything goes well, and God willing, and the creek don't rise, uh, NASA hopes to get uh, Discovery back to Pad 39A. Uh, I guess, according to the article, I think they said mid-January, and uh, hopefully, um, they're still aiming for uh, for February 3rd launch. Again, as as you pointed out, Mark, uh, this is all part of the process. It's all part of the part of manned space and uh, uh, you, know, you got to do your due diligence especially when you're talking about an environment that could bite you and bite you badly so uh, again they're, they're doing their due diligence and I'm sure that uh, uh, we'll be in a good uh, good position to fly again in uh, by February but uh, just just as a as an aside uh, we were um, talking about all this and and um, most of us here were discussing a rollback uh, possibility as as a, being a good one in this whole instance. And you know, I, as much as I hate to say it, it looks like we were right. Um, again, I'm sure once more they'll 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 psych out whatever gremlin that bit them on November fifth and uh, uh, get things going again. Alrighty then, moving on to our next topic is that. Expedition 26, the new crew to head towards the International Space Station, launched in their Soyuz TMA-20 spacecraft from the Baikonur Cosmodrome located in Kazakhstan at 2.09 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Wednesday, December 15th. In doing so, they will join the current crew, which is up there, which includes Commander Scott Kelly, Flight Engineers Alexander Kaleri, and Oleg Skirposhka. The crew which launched includes new crew members Dmitry Kondratiev, Catherine Coleman of the U.S., and Paolo Nespoli of Italy. And they docked to the International Space Station on Friday, December 17th at 3.11 at the RASVET Mini Research Module on the International Space Station. In doing so, the International Space Station is once again up to its full six-member crew. So they made it into orbit, and uh, if I'm correct, Gene, there was a little bit of an issue going up there at about uh, a three-hour communication loss. 
the Russian ground uh, support teams had lost contact with both um, the International Space Station and the Soyuz TMN-20. Oops. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what was that all about? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I haven't seen much about that, and uh, that may be a shortcoming on my part or just being kind of closed about it from the uh, from the Russian end of the, the news business. But uh, apparently they had a glitch in a, uh, I'm going to call it fiber optic network. It's referred to slightly differently, but at the Mission Control Center. And uh, sorry, but I, I know there's lots and lots and lots and lots, and need I continue... Lots of things that can cause problems with with any kind of uh, network, fiber optic or or old fashioned. But uh, you got to wonder if some guy didn't run a uh, a ditch witch or a backhoe and and cut a uh, a fiber that uh, they had forgotten maybe where it was. Uh, of course, it could have just been a simple system glitch that uh, involved changing out some components. But yeah, it's one of those things you hate to uh, have happen, and the fact that it could possibly happen anytime depending on what it was uh but then again you know the astronauts are are flying the ship and uh on board the iss they're they're doing their job and what do you need mission control for they can take a few hours off if necessary right (laughs) what do you need mission control for yeah i guess I, i guess so but uh uh, it's you still want to go ahead and maintain a, a steady stream of, uh, of ground uh, of ground communication, especially with the International Space Station. Um, does again, the the Russians are going to be in the driver's seat uh, after uh, now? It looks like after after June of uh, of 2011. Um, what is what do you think this says? Does, do you think this is a confidence shaker at all? Um, with with letting letting the Russians have the driver's seat for a little while, or or is this just one of them things, and uh, and you move on? You know, it, I read where Mission Control was uh, built in the late fifties. Gee, that kind of sounds like Kennedy Space Center and uh, and later Johnson Space Center, right? And some of its equipment is badly outdated. We've talked about infrastructure and needed uh, improvements, you know, here in the U.S. So, you know, I'm sure that, that they do have some some problems with uh, with aging systems and whatnot, but uh, we do as well, and theirs may be more severe in some areas, but uh, I think they'll take care of business. They'll keep it going, and I, I know that uh, they've got technical people that, uh, you know, work hard to, to keep everything up, and when things happen, they work as quickly as they can to fix them, so... I don't really have any worries. I don't think this is going to be a, a... I mean, it may be some ongoing headaches, and it may be a headline here and there, but chances are the press is going to have trouble really judging how important it is, and this may be a lot less than than, than what we see in the press. Yeah, I, I have a tendency to agree with you there, Mark. The other thing, too, is we've had issues here uh, where we've we've had to go off the air, uh, so to speak, uh, there were several instances where we had uh, what you know hurricanes approaching uh, Texas, and they've had to evacuate the uh, uh, you know the Johnson Space Flight Center as a result of that. So Corley, I've had the whole had the whole uh, shooting match um, to talk to the ISS, and I'm sure too if if something 
were to happen over at Korolev or even over at Johnson, that the uh, there's enough, uh, you know, there would be uh, uh, folks like so say the the uh, Japanese Space Center uh, that would, could take com- take control, or even uh, the European uh, Space Center as well that could also take control if you know such such an event happened where you lost contact with the ISS. And I'm sure the same thing exists with Soyuz now. Now that it looks like Soyuz is going to be in the driver's seat, where you know, where even possibly even the Johnson Space Flight Center can take can take the, uh, mm-hmm. the lead on, on a on a mission like that. I don't know if such a plan exists, but I'm sure it does. I'm sure, Some, yeah. Um, but that would be something interesting to find out. That if you know if you do lose contact with a with uh, if if Corley have lost contact with Soyuz, could could the Johnson Space Flight Center pick it up and Especially with a with a, a NASA astronaut on board, so uh, I'm sure that's that's the case. Um, moving right along, uh, you were talking about configuring and so on. It looks like uh, uh, mission managers on the the ISS are going to be convening in the not too distant future to take a look at um, the long term uh, configuration for the International Space Station. There was an interesting article, I guess, uh, dated. Uh, just today, actually, um, from uh, uh, nasaspaceflight.com, where um, the ISS program managers are, are going to be getting together and assessing uh, what the long-term configuration of the uh, the U.S. segment of the uh, of the ISS are, are, is going to be, um, and preparing for the infamous post-shuttle era, um, where you're going to see, we hope anyway. A whole fleet of quote, you know, what they what the article says, visiting vehicles arriving at the station, and what what how how these how each one of these things is going to be supported. So I guess they're looking at you know uh, the uh, uh, using uh, I guess the common berthing mechanism for the uh, the Japanese HTV for the uh, the European ATV, the two. Uh, um, Cargo vehicles, and of course the Dragon, and uh, a few other cargo vehicles that may be in, in, in development, including uh, the, the Boeing, or even even the the manned vehicle that, that Boeing is building, or even the Orion that that, that Lockheed's Lockheed's building. Um, so uh, they've got a lot to consider, and uh, again, I guess this is all all uh, uh, preparing for the post-shuttle era um, and trying to get the ISS in a good posture before uh, before the end of the program. So uh, it, leads, it, it again tells me that that last flight, STS-135, is going to be critical. I'll tell you what, this is complicated. The whole issue of what what vehicles can be berthed at which places, at which times, depending on, you know, what else is uh, berthed at, at other at other nodes and ports and such is complicated and I have to tell a quick story of working at an airport where a new terminal building was was in under construction and as they went from you know digging a hole in the dirt and pouring concrete and bringing steel structure up at one point we looked at the steel coming up out of the ground and said you know it looks like that's going to block the view of the end of the runway and sure enough the uh, control tower lost the touchdown area of the runway, and they lost about a thousand feet view of the taxiway that that took aircraft down to the runway end. And so they ended up for several years with a, a temporary fix of having a video camera on a pole down there, 
that they could slew around and they could look at the uh, taxiway or they could look at the touchdown area of the runway to make sure that it was clear for traffic that was landing at that spot. And it was because the, the, the new terminal building totally obstructed that area. Once they put the, uh, the, the rest of the structure together, it's like, huh, okay, well, we used to be able to see the end of the runway. And uh, this is what the engineers get paid the big bucks for, is to plan the, the clearances on the ISS, how much room they've got. Uh, I'm sure they've got a lot of requirements for different vehicles to have you know, a certain amount of room. Uh, and it's complicated. I don't envy anybody. Uh, of course, I'm the guy that can't play pool because I can't figure out when I hit the ball here that it's going to go there. It goes the other direction, and I can't figure out why. So it's a, it's a challenge. <laughs> I'd, I'd like to look over somebody's shoulder. I might be able to understand a little bit, but uh, it, uh, it it's not simple. And when you put the fact that it's such a mix of different vehicles, you're talking mm-hmm. about Dragon, you're talking about Orbital, you've got HTV, ATV, uh, Soyuz, Progress. Um, and there are times that their flight schedule is extremely busy with... Uh, I'm going to say a dozen arrivals and departures during the course of a year or more, and that's the way that's the way it's going to be for the next few years because that's a working space station. It's no longer under construction or nearly at the point of, uh, of being finished with maybe what one two more shuttle flights bringing spares up. Yeah, well, not only that, there's still uh, one experiment package that still has to fly as well um, in uh, in April, and that's that one is is. Uh, uh, a group of physicists can't wait for that one to get to get up there. So, um, uh, of course, that's the Alpha Magnetic Spectrometer, or AMS, and I believe that's what 134 is dedicated to. So 135, even though I, I believe the, the NASA, NASA authorization bill that I believe one part of the House passed, but, uh, you know, because of a whole bunch of other things that the, that that just came tumbling down, so we're, we're the, the budget's kind of sort of on life support right now, or at least we're at 2010 levels. Um, so uh, I'm not too sure, you know, that, and that all depends on what happens with with the new Congress when they come in. But uh, 135, that getting funded to me is now even more critical. Uh, and and there's some, you know, I'm just hoping that it does, in all honesty, because you you. We talk about ATV, we talk about HTV, um, Dragon, uh, Orbital, and and what other other some other stuff that that's that's in in the pipeline. So far as I can tell, nothing can still match what the shuttle can give you, and that having one thirty five over there would just be an absolute boon for for folks and we can just finally put the cherry on top of the top of the uh, the ISS after that um, and leave it in, in in a in a good condition post shuttle and i guess that's what i'm really hoping hoping why i'm really really keeping my fingers crossed for 135 so anyway it looks like we've got not so nice news coming out of the uh, unpiloted, or should I say, our, our planetary, our unpiloted planetary probes um, on one end, and one little um, Earth orbiting experiment that kind of we, we've sort of lost contact with it, and we're not too sure what its what its final status was uh, on a uh, 
uh, December 13th article um, by uh, by Daily Tech. It was reported that uh, NanoCell, NanoCell D, which was uh, an 8.5-pound uh, satellite nanosat, or a small satellite, um, which was carrying a, a rather interesting experiment. We, we kind of sort of mentioned it here on the show uh, once before. Um, it had a, a, a nice, large um, solar, you know, sort of mylar, I, I guess, made out of, out of some kind of mylar or, or something like that, mm-hmm. um, that was supposed to deploy and create a, a sort of sail and to see if that particular concept actually worked. Um, uh, it was launched, I believe, on uh, November 19th out of Kodiak, Alaska. And um, uh, I think the uh, another nanosat, FastSat, was actually going to go ahead and, and, and deploy it out, um, which also marked a, a, begin, a, a first where one satellite was actually deploying another satellite. Um, however, uh, we don't know what actually happened to NanoCell-D, and apparently NASA's indicating that the, uh, the little nanosat may actually be lost. Um, the article uh, by uh, Tracy McDaniel of Daily Tech, uh, which was, uh, again, on uh, the December 13th uh, edition here, um, said that... Uh, uh, NASA indicated that uh, they're not even too sure. At, at the time of the the ejection, the spacecraft telemetry showed that NanoCell D was ejected from FastSat, but after after that, we don't know what happened. Uh, the FastSat, according to, to to quote the article, the FastSat spacecraft ejection system data also indicated an ejection event. Now again, NanoCell D had about a 100. What was I believe it was a a 100 foot polymer sail that was supposed to be deployed, and just to see if the concept of a solar sail was actually supposed to work. Um, and it's unfortunate that we've lost this this one because it, I, I believe too, uh, the Planetary Society had something called Cosmos One that was supposed to be also the uh, the first solar sail deployed, and uh, unfortunately, I think that one. Excuse me, I think that one uh, kind of sort of ended up in the drink somewhere or, or just off course or, or something. Um, I don't exactly remember what the history of that was, but I know no Cosmos 1 unfortunately failed. So this is kind of sad um, that this one didn't work. Um, uh, any other additional additional con- comments or anything like that? Or? Yeah, just for reminiscing, uh, NanoCell D popped up on Twitter and had a string of rather humorous tweets, uh, <laughs> one of the last of which that I've spotted here. Uh, this was December 5th in the evening. It said, uh, less than five hours before E-time, time for dinner and a movie. I'll have a hamburger with fries and a Coke. Watching Harry, but don't spoil the ending. <laughs> and so, you know, along with other things of, uh, you know, should have... Uh, you know, should have been ejected. You should be picking up my beacon if you're in the south pacific and you know more technical type things but uh the last tweet that i see here was december 10th and uh it it seems to kind of close out the series with hello all thanks for following look for more updates about me as time goes on here's the latest and there's a link but uh looks like uh, nano cld 
was another good attempt, but uh, something went wrong. But, you know, at eight and a half pounds, you know, what can you do? Yeah, I guess that that's one of the beauties of of having these small little little nanosats that you know if if something goes wrong, oh well. Um, it, 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 from a from a space flight standpoint, the things cost a, a song to go ahead and, and build, and 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 even probably less than uh, your basic ex- other experiment package to go ahead and fly. But uh, it's still a darn shame that uh, we we lo- apparently we lost this one. Um, according to, to to again, according to the article here. Uh, NASA is going to go ahead and try to continue to troubleshoot and attempt to to try to make contact with with the nanosat. Um, and I believe uh, just watch Twitter or watch the uh, the nanosat nanosail D dashboard to see if there are any up- updates. Um, the article went ahead to, and mentioned that uh, uh, the only other successful uh, solar cell mission was a Japanese flight. Uh, that successfully reached Venus this past summer. And um, another solar sail mission uh, attempted to, to orbit Venus. This is again from Japan um, earlier this month. Now, that kind of is a good lead-in to what we were, our next deal um, that we we're going to go ahead and discuss. Again, that, that last solar sail mission was... Uh, was a satellite that uh, was a Japanese satellite that also ran into some trouble, huh, Mark? Yeah, and so apparently uh, another JAXA satellite, uh, actually two-parter Icarus, which was a solar sail demonstrator that launched together with Akatsuki, and uh, Icarus did fine. It deployed, a proved the the, the basics of uh, solar propulsion with its sail. But Akatsuki um, didn't do so well. They had a little problem uh, at the point where they were supposed to fire thrusters to, you know, enter orbit on Venus. Yeah, there was some speculation. In fact, there was a piece of speculation out of the uh, the Christian Science Monitor um, saying, you know, did something actually go ahead and, and smack into uh, Akatsuki uh, that uh, kind of sort of veered the... Uh, the probe off course and uh, uh, caused the uh, the issue. Hmm. You wouldn't think there would be poachers hanging around Venus <laughs> looking looking for wayward satellites, but uh, that's yep. you know basically they they lost uh, thrust on the engines. So I guess we can't really put it up to any anything nefarious. Not even a little micrometeoroid. I I don't believe, which was uh, what I read later that the JAXA official said. Nah, we don't think we took a uh, an impact that caused this. Yeah, they were saying that after the the initial burn, um, a communications blackout uh, happened, which. Uh, uh, I guess they expected that when Akasuki swung behind Venus. And, uh, uh, no, actually, they didn't. Not they didn't the expect deg- it, huh? Not to that degree. I think the uh, blackout was caused by the spacecraft going into safe mode. We've heard that before with uh, yeah. with Mars Orbiter. And uh, it went into safe mode. And when they restored COM with it, that's what they discovered, was that it had uh, done a, a partial firing of two and a half to three minutes maybe out of 12 that was planned and uh, they lost fuel pressure um, 
and when that happened, the engines shut down. So it it brings uh, you know the detective work to the JAXA folks, unfortunately, because they've already had some uh, some problems that that they're recovering from for their space program for planetary missions. So okay, Akasuki has basically uh, overshot its quarry. It's uh, uh, bypassed Venus completely. Is is the mission basically shot, or um, are there some hopes to salvage something from here, or or, or what's what's the current status? Do you, do you have you heard? Well, sounds like they've got hopes for a second orbital insertion burn. Uh, the fuel that they didn't use on this one may be enough to uh, try again. Um, apparently, Akatsuki makes... Uh, it takes 200 days for its trip around the sun. Uh, its battery will hold out for another six years. If they can find the cause of the problem, they may have enough fuel to try another uh, you know, attempt at orbit. And uh, the JAXA folks, <laughs> they're hopeful. They said everybody thought Hayabusa was unrecoverable, and that's the one that limped back uh, and retrieved some, uh, what, what it was Hayabusa's uh, payload that it brought back to Earth. It brought back uh, a piece, well, basically uh, some uh, some dust from, uh, from a comet encounter. That's right. Encounter. That's right, yeah. And it landed, I think, in Australia, right? That's correct. Yeah. So they're hoping with the the you know pulling uh, some miracles out of their their bag of tricks that maybe they can do the same with Akatsuki, and the fact that they hopefully still have fuel, which they should, and, and you know the fact that they're just going in circles. They wait for the next lineup, which will be in a few years. I've lost track of that little detail, but uh, oh, November of 2016, January 2017. Mm-hmm. Uh, is is the time when they could get another shot at this? So we're, we're so the mission isn't lost; it's just sort of delayed slightly. I mean, they don't have enough fuel to go ahead and basically, you know, slam on the brakes and say, "Okay, whoa, let's turn around and try this." They have to go ahead and depend on on orbital mechanics to kind of sort of help them out. Correct, Mark? Yeah, yeah. And the sad part is, Jaxa says our score is zero wins, two losses, <laughs> and. Uh, you know they're they're considering in the future that they may want to collaborate more with NASA and uh, ESA to learn from their successes with planetary intercept type missions, and uh, you know they may scale back their ambitions in the meantime, maybe uh, you know work with the other agencies on uh, on on collaborative type efforts, which you know that certainly would be smart and. Uh, you know, give them the opportunity to to learn a little bit from what they've gone through and engineering ongoing. They'll learn plenty more as they develop new uh, new systems. Yeah, it kind of reminds me about uh, uh, back in uh, the early days of uh, of Mars exploration. Uh, we didn't have such a great record of getting there either. Uh, we've lost a lot of spacecraft there. In fact, uh, one uh, JPL scientist whose name now eludes me. Uh, Theorized that there was this, you know, actually called it the Great Galactic Ghoul that was out there going ahead and chewing up spacecraft heading out to Mars. So uh, maybe he's moved. Maybe he's he's moved from Mars to Venus. So 
this is you know and and is after japanese spacecraft now and and not us spacecraft so <laughs> um maybe 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 we can go ahead and and help uh help them swat uh swat the great galactic ghoul away from from venus for a little while as well oh just for a quick mention uh, we were talking about this before we started the show hmm? uh akatsuki did get some shots of venus uh following it's uh, recovery from safe mode during their their checks that they were making on the uh, on the satellite. They got some actual long wave infrared and uh, UV images of Venus. I, I guess as it receded in the distance might be the sad way of expressing it. But you know they got some uh, things that, that give you a taste of what could have been and maybe what they'll see in the future. Uh, also, what might be to come. Because mm-hmm. remember, we still have a shot at uh, December 2016, uh, uh, January uh, 2017. So we'll, all it may not be lost for this particular probe yet. So I, I'm not ready to, to write its epitaph just yet. And again, we'll have the uh, uh, that particular link with the, the photographs taken by Akasuki over on the uh, on the show notes, courtesy of the uh, Japan Aerospace and Exploration Agency. On some, onto some um, really good news here. Uh, it looks like that the first photographs from Sophia, uh, which is NASA's uh, Stratospheric Observatory for Infrared Astronomy, uh, took a good close look at uh, Orion and some other star clusters uh, on uh, on November thirtieth, and took its real first good shot. Of uh, of some good stuff here. Um, you want to go ahead and talk a little bit about that one, Mark? I think this is extremely cool. The uh, the times that I've dug in and and looked up a little about Sophia, uh, they're using a 747 uh, SP. They refer to it as highly modified. Yeah, I guess so, because uh, inside the 747, they have a infrared telescope it's the uh it's an in-flight observatory uh, previously we've mentioned it they were doing um kind of proving missions test missions and now mm-hmm. they're in the operational phase and what they've got this this telescope is a 100 inch german made it's bigger than hubble's to give you wow. an idea of scale and um the first observations were made with what was referred to as a general-use mid-infrared camera called Forecast. They've got a uh, German camera that's uh, going to be installed soon called GREAT, G-R-E-A-T, and uh, it's going to observe the universe in submillimeter and far infrared. They expect SOFIA to have a mission length of up to 20 years, and... Um, Sophia, and, and here's stuff that's new to me. I had to read this and kind of let it sink in. I think the flight that they made uh, November 30th, they were taking some of their observations at like 41 or 42,000 feet. And that's their, their cruising altitude, 39 to 45,000 feet above sea level. And apparently, it's above 99% of the atmosphere's water vapor. And it's that water vapor that blocks much of infrared light from reaching Earth. So they're above the part of the atmosphere that kills, I, I say kill, that's an over-expression, over, over expression, 
that uh, detracts from the imaging that they get from Earth-based observatories. So imagine, I, I wonder if this is something, you know, theoretically possible, that you could have Earth-based observatories taking a look at a particular spot in the sky, and Sophia doing the same thing at the same time, and with what they can do with computers and, and merging images and, and taking the, you know, the... The, the vagueness and the, the distortion effects out of it. And I wonder if they won't get some imaging that they've never had before. That's some really exciting stuff. First first off, the seeing up there is, is probably just incredible because, as, as you said, it's right above that cloud le- level there. And uh, uh, it, it would be really, really fun to see see what, what they, they come up with. Um, according, I'm looking at an article from Discovery Magazine here. It looks like that there are two more science flights scheduled uh, before before the, the Christmas holiday, um, and that the they want to go ahead uh, and start the second uh, phase beginning in November. Uh, again, this I mean I'm sorry, um, February of next year. Um, check that. And again, they're talking about uh, using um, that uh, German camera. They're called uh, called Great, um, uh, and uh, so that should be really, really cool. And and to see also too that this thing is is going to be operational for twenty years. Wow! Um, you saw what Hubble did for 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 us over over its career. So the, this should be really, really exciting. And again, this is this is something that you could probably fly. I don't know what its range is, but you could probably fly it, you know, in in, in uh, you know halfway decent areas, and probably get some some really good good science and some really good data. So this should be kind of fun to, to see what it comes up with. Well, I'll give you some numbers off of a uh, quick fact sheet for Sophia. Um, the 747 SP Special Performance. It uh, has a service ceiling of 45,000 feet above 99.8% of the Earth's atmospheric water vapor. It can uh, cruise along at 450 knots, which is Mach 0.8 or 520 miles per hour, and its range is 6,625 nautical miles. Mission duration of 7 to 9 hours standard and 12.2 hours maximum. So uh, the the door, this is something that's hard to appreciate, uh, the the uh, the telescope has a door that that opens, so they actually open that part of the fuselage to the atmosphere when they're in flight and when they're making observations. The door itself weighs three thousand one hundred and fifty pounds. Wow! Uh, for metric fans, that's fourteen hundred and thirty kilograms. Um, this particular aircraft first flew in nineteen seventy seven. It was delivered to Pan Am at the time. It was christened the Clipper Lindenberg by Anne Morrow Lindenberg. And uh, it was on the 50th anniversary of Charles Lindenberg's solo flight across the Atlantic. And it was rechristened the Clipper Lindberg by Eric Lindberg on May 21st, 2007, during uh, its beginning of its service and refit with NASA. So, uh, I mean, this is cool. Let me, I got to ramble on it just a second about the telescope. Uh, Go right ahead. It can, it's, it's in flight range that it can uh, vary to look. It can range in elevation from plus 15 degrees above the horizon to plus 70 degrees above the horizon. 
it has um, the the weight of the telescope is 17 tons, 34,000 pounds. Um, there's lots of things in the in the optical and the infrared sciences area that I have no meaning what this what this all means. And there's some pictures of it that are just fascinating to see. Um, man, wouldn't it be nice to have it land at an airport near you and have an open house where you could go look at it? That would be cool. That would be really cool um, where you can actually you know, get on board or, or maybe even even just, just, just see the aircraft. I mean, that alone would be amazing. Um, I always wondered, too, what kind of science you'd get or what kind of... Uh, uh, images you'd get. I mean, I know what, from my own personal experiences, um, uh, if I sneeze the wrong way when I'm using my own little, you know, my little eight-inch telescope, I'll I'll lose the I'll lose the image or something like that. But I'm sure that uh, they've got ways of of baking in, you know, uh, baking in a, a little problem, you know, trying to solve little problems like that. So if something rattles the wrong way or something like that, you can still get a fairly de- decent image out of it. Um, I- I'm really, really excited to see, as, as an amateur astronomer, I'm really excited to see what uh, Sophia comes up with. Um, I guess if you want to go ahead and learn anything more about uh, about Sophia and its mission, or, the, or as it's called, the Stratospheric Observatory for Infrared Astronomy, you can go ahead and visit www.nasa.gov forward slash Sophia and get some more data there. But again, this, this sounds like it's, it's going to be one heck of an exciting mission. Um, hey, I, I got a request. Uh, if sure. anybody digs into Sophia and finds out some interesting information, let us know. Get, uh, get an email off to us. Let one of us know on Twitter. Our email address, am I correct, Gene, is at mailbag at talkingspaceonline.com. That's correct. And again, if you want to go ahead and shoot us a message on Twitter, you can go ahead and do that. We are uh, Talking Space, uh, one word, on, on Twitter. So go ahead and uh, and give us a shout. Um, speaking of some very interesting astronomical activity, there is something that's going to be happening Oh, I think um, Sunday into Monday, um, of, uh, of as even as we speak here tonight, Mark. Yeah, and of course, for our listeners, it will be something that happened, you know, in the recent past, but uh, exciting nonetheless. Uh, as long as we're we're talking about space, why not talk about the moon for a second? Indeed, and we've got a, a partial lunar eclipse coming up. Uh, so, uh, and there's some really good naked eye astronomy. If uh, anybody's interested, they can go out, just go outside and, and take a look at that. Um, by the time this goes out, that the, this particular astronomical event will be over and done with. But uh, I hope uh, everybody had a chance to to get out there and, and take a look at that. I know I'm I'm gonna try to to lose uh, lose some uh, some links and uh, go out there and, and take a look. I believe this is going to happen in the wee hours of the morning Eastern time. But um, I believe the event would be visible to anybody in North America. And uh, uh, so I hope uh, hope you folks went ahead and uh, had a chance to avail yourself of that. And uh, it's a pretty good lead-in to what we are going to be talking about uh, next week. Um, we uh, had a little bit of an interview with uh, uh, the folks over at Open Luna 
both uh, Mr. Paul Graham and uh, uh, associate Ms. Uh, Debbie Lee Wilkerson. Uh, we are going to go ahead and run that interview for you next week. Um, we uh, thank those folks for begging uh, and, and for begging our indulgence. And uh, uh, we had a lot of uh, news that was happening with, uh, with, with of course, SGS 133, and we had a few few folks kind of sort of uh, fall into our lap to go ahead and discuss some stuff. I believe uh, Mike Mullane also uh, was kind enough to visit us during that time period. Um, and, of course, we had some big plans for the launch of SGS 133, and, and our, our times were focused on that. But uh, it was a fascinating interview. Uh, I had a chance to sit there and, and go through it one more time before we're, we post it, and uh, it, it should uh, should uh, make your uh, your holiday season uh, a little brighter, especially if you're you're going over the river and through the woods to, to visit folks. So uh, uh, it was a rather compelling hour, and and we thank both uh, Mr. Paul Graham and Ms. Debbie Lee Wilkerson for spending some time with us. I think folks will find it interesting. I, I like hearing about things that are uh, different from what I'm used to. And we're used to NASA. We're used to how they think and how they plan. And Open Loon has got some, some new ideas and uh, something that I think we're going to see more and, mo- more and more of, both with them and with other organizations that are, uh, that are working to make space available to, to regular folks someday. Alrighty then, with that, I believe that brings episode 242 to a close. So, at this point, I'd like to give a special thank you to Gene McCulk for joining us. Thank you, Gene. Always a heck of a lot of fun, Sawyer. Thanks a lot. I'd also like to give a special thank you to Mark Raderman for being here as well. My pleasure. Let's see what happens. we got 2011 to look forward to in a big way. And there's one last special thank you that needs to go out, and that is to you, the listeners, for listening to this episode. Have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are.